0: I'd also like to thank you for the cards and the texts and the, and the calls uh, on behalf of my passing of my sister. I appreciate the expressed concern to that. I was very touched by some of the things that you were saying. As far as our lesson today, we've, again, we're in the book of Judges. And so, if you haven't turned there yet, you could go ahead and turn to the book of Judges. As a quick uh, reminder, um, we're looking at a a, a model here uh, that seems to cover um, the book. Um, God makes promises or issues commands, and then man responds to those promises or commands, (laughs) he either obeys or he disobeys, and then upon man's response, then God then responds either through blessing or through judgment. And last week, uh, we were looking at part of God's judgment uh, on the people of Israel for not driving out the Canaanites, And we said that last week that uh, the Lord's judgment against Israel was set out in two sections. Both sections beginning uh, with the phrase, and the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. We find that in chapter 2, verse 14. And we find it again in chapter 2 and verse 20. And then last week, we looked at the first one, we looked at verse 214, and that explained the principle of what I called slavery deliverance cycle. The people of Israel uh, did not obey the command. Part of their (coughs) disobedience, God punished them or judged them, and they would be sent into Uh, Slavery, either slavery to the sin or slavery physically by their enemies. And then they would cry out for mercy. They'd cry out to God to deliver them. And then God would uh, answer their prayers out of love, out of compassion for his people. He would hear them. And so that was the first part of the the judgment. So we find ourselves in, in verse 20 today. So chapter 2 and verse 20, we're picking up the second uh, part of this judgment, and that is to explain why um, uh, the nations were allowed to remain among Israel, why they were allowed to remain in the land. And that's where we'll pick up our study today. So verse 20 and following, So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord, to walk in it, as their fathers, as their fathers kept or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Here we see that God knew that the nation of Israel would not be completely faithful. In fact, when we started this study a few weeks ago, we quoted from Deuteronomy where God told Moses that the nations and the people would whore after other gods. And so he did not give all the nations into Joshua's hands. And the purpose of that, according to what we just read, was to test the next generation. I think it was two weeks ago we talked about each generation having to submit their hearts and their lives to God. And so he's testing the next generation. And sure enough, the next generation fails this test. And we saw that earlier in our study uh, of this uh, book. So God pronounces his judgment. This is part of the model that we talked about. He would let the nations remain as a continual test to Israel's faith. Perhaps we can make a bit of an application to our own lives right now. Sometimes it's easier to look back in history rather than to look what's going on in our life around us. Perhaps we are living in such times as these. We are surrounded by similar Baalistic philosophies today as a test by God of our faith. Will we compromise like the Israelites? Will we submit to the evil culture? Or will we continue to stand firm for Christ? So like the Israelites of old, perhaps we find ourselves in a similar situation. Now, it may be a little bit strange when you stop and think about allowing the nations to remain. In fact, it may sound a little bit of a conflict. Um, God had told them to eliminate these nations. That was his revealed will at the time. Now, however, his will is for them to remain. So I think the way to understand this is to relate it to the principle that we discussed a few weeks ago, dealing with God's judgments. God's judgments are never arbitrary, He makes the punishment fit the crime. Where there is compromise with sin, then that very sin becomes the means God uses to discipline His children. Our sins become our tormentors, you might say. The compromise with sin was that they failed to drive out the Canaanites. So the judgment for sin was to continue to allow the Canaanites to live among them and suffer the consequences thereof. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them and all who had not known any of the wars of Canaan. Only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might know war or to teach them, only those who had not known it previously. The five lords of the Philistines and all of the Canaanites and the <coughs> Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount uh, Lebanon and Mount baal Hermon, as far as Libo hamath the entrance of Hamath. And they were for testing Israel to find out if they would hearken to the commands of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Now here we're told in verse two that the sole reason why the Canaanites were left in the land was that Israel might learn how to make war. Again, this seems to be a little bit of a conflict uh, with something else in the passage. You'll be read in, in chapter two twenty-two and in chapter three verse one. It declares the purpose was to test Israel's faith. So, is there a problem here? Is it to Teach them war, or is it uh, for faith, to test their faith? I think we can reconcile this um, when we examine what is meant by training Israel in the ways of war. In the first place, Israel had to learn that there was a war. And that war consisted of God's promises or commands and they're rejecting them and living among the Canaanites, taking on their culture, taking on their gods. They had to learn that peace and compromise with the Canaanites was not possible. There was a war going on. They couldn't be the people of God, and the people of Canaan. Let's apply that to today. How many Christians either have no idea that there's a war raging all around them? Or perhaps they chose to ignore the spiritual warfare that we are called to fight. We're engaged in a war today, just like the Israelites were. In the second place, Israel had to learn how to fight the wars of the Lord. Now, this does not mean military tactics, though such of those things are important. Ephesians 6, Paul writes about how we are to battle the spiritual warfare, By putting on the full armor of God. And that full armor of God includes the shield of faith. And he closes that section of chapter 6, Ephesians, uh, by saying this (coughs) telling the Christians, in order to battle, we must pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers. We go to war and we go to battle by means of prayer and by means of faith. Israel had to learn that the wars of the Lord were fought by faith and by prayer. As far as military tactics are concerned, Scripture is often not very helpful in that manner. Um, The majority of Israel's battles were won through miracles. Um, It's hard to come up with concrete military tactics uh, by marching around Jericho seven times. Or you can't always call on the sun to stand still while you fight the battle. Of course, there are some ordinary battles in Scripture, and there's always something to learn uh, from a battle as you see it. But it's not tactics and strategy that I I really want to emphasize here. Israel came out of Egypt, and they were attacked by the Amalekites. This famous battle recorded in Exodus 17, 8 through 13, was fought by and was fought by prayer. Israel prevailed, and they won, but they won only with Moses' hands being extended. They were upraised in prayer. When Moses grew weary, Aaron and Ur would hold up his hands and express dependence upon God. Israel was taught that war could be fought and won only in wholeheartedly trust and dependence on God. And so I think this conflict that we mentioned earlier, the testing of Israel's faith and teaching Israel of war, are pretty much along the same lines. They're not conflicts here. The way to teach them war is by faith and prayer. And The Canaanites were there to test their faith. The issue of history has always been the war of God and his people against Satan and his. And that war is only properly and effectively achieved in an attitude of faith and prayer and a dependence on God. When you think about it, we might say that faith involves an attitude of warfare. That it is hatred against sin, hatred against evil, and a humble dependence upon the grace of God. Again, today, bring it forward, unfortunately, much of modern Christianity, these two things are separated Many Christians who are actively fighting secular humanism, communism, or other modern Canaanite entities are doing so by political activism. They are not grounded in prayer and faith. They're trying to do it on their own. They are not dependent upon God. On the other hand, Many modern Christians are not involved in the Word at all. And their dependence upon God is very shallow and unreal. So I believe God calls us to war in dependence upon Him. And that's the essence of true faith. We can get very well depressed looking around the culture, looking around other people, But we have to remember our dependence is upon God and his strength, and we do that through faith and prayer. So you see, the testing of faith is linked to the testing of obedience. And as we have seen in earlier lessons, faith and obedience is what Israel lacked and therefore didn't complete God's command to rid the land of the Canaanites. So, as James said, faith without works is dead. And faith and warfare, obedience should be inseparable in the lives of those people who are called by God. I'm picking up our reading of verse 5 And the sons of Israel lived along among the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the perizzites and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives, and gave their own daughters to their sons, and served their gods. Again, that last few words is a chilling. And served their gods. here again, in verse 6, is the twofold sin of Israel that we talked about last few weeks. The sin of idolatry and the sin of covenant intermarriage. These were covenant people with God. And yet, they would break that covenant and seek in an adulterous relationship with other gods. And they would do it through idolatry. <clears throat> We've talked in the weeks past about the failure of family life. And it comes to a climax here where we are told that the Israelites intermarried with the Canaanites. Intermarriage with non-Christians is one of the most destructive of all sins. It is a place here with idolatry as the um, summation of Israel's apostasy put together. In effect, intermarriage guarantees the failure of the next generation. We have, if we stop and, and look at this section of Scripture... I think there are three applications that we can make uh, at this point. First, it appear, <coughs> it is apparent from uh, this passage, as from other parts of Scripture, that pluralism is a great evil in God's sight. Pluralism is the belief that all faiths eventually lead to God, And we should tolerate them in our society, believing that society is neutral. All religions are are good. All religions lead to God. Uh, That's pluralism. And we see in this passage that that's not what God intended. We see Israel compromised by following the Canaanite religion and following their culture. And not only did they follow, but they permitted, as I said last week, Canaan conquered the Israelites with their culture. And as we quoted Bob Dylan last week, you're going to serve somebody. Culture's not neutral. I would say since we are omniscient, we should tolerate at least different Christian religions, different Christian churches, let me say, as long as they believe in the Trinity and the infallibility of Scripture. I think we have to be a little bit um, lenient in that direction. But God, however, will come out against us if we tolerate anti-Christian cults in our midst. Such cults may pursue their beliefs as long as they do not attempt to proselytize from the Christians. We read in Deuteronomy 13, uh, kind of a similar situation here. It says, let us follow what uh, uh, the prophet says this, uh, a cultist prophet in, in Deuteronomy 13 says, let us follow other gods gods who have you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of the prophet or dreamer. This is God saying, The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him and with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your, your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep this Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. So we're seeing here, God is not a fan of pluralism. He's saying there's only one true God, and there's only one faith. And I don't believe this is just some Old Testament notion. I think the Great Commission commands us to work to disciple all the nations, And we are not to restrict that uh, discipleship just to a one-on-one individual basis or to our immediate family. That means that we should disciple the society as well. Throughout all the ages of the church, the Christian faith has held that society must be publicly and openly Christian. That the laws of the land must be in accord with biblical principles and that compromising with paganism must not be permitted openly. To paraphrase one of our own nation's founding fathers, John Adams, in effect he said, our Constitution is based on biblical principles and Judeo-Christian ethics. And when the people no longer believe in God, the government cannot long stand. The biblical principle was compromised in the, in the 19th century here in America. And today we see it almost exploding among the churches in the 21st century, the belief that there's more than one way to see God. Surely this is the same compromise that, with Baalism that brought God's judgment against Israel. And it will just as surely bring God's judgment against us today. We Christians are finding our authority greatly restricted today because of our forefathers compromised with this bailistic philosophy of pluralism. For too long, Christians have advocated total tolerance with pluralism. And we are now experiencing a rise in pornography, child sacrifice through abortion, and and other unspeakable forms of of depravity in America as a result of that sin. Pluralism brings the judgment of God. There can be no compromise. Psalm 139, 19 through 22 If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away with me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent, and your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. There can be no compromise. The weapon that we wield uh, in this war is the declaration of God's word. This makes it all the more shocking when preachers are declaring pluralism as the Christian view. And by declaring Christian pluralism as an opportunity to worship uh, the same God in, in different ways, then Christian pastors are giving up their most important tool and that's the teaching of God's word Christians do not go to war to take over society by a gun or by violent revolution rather it is for preaching of the holiness of God and the salvation in Christ alone accompanied by a life of faith and obedience that's the way we fight this war the second application from this passage is that God can shake up compromisers by means of war and enslavement. With our culture today rejecting God and his commandments and the church as compromised as it is, it's possible that God could judge us by way of war and enslavement. When we set that, listen to the letters on Wednesday night, from the Sudan or lessons from the letters from the Central uh, African Republic, and we hear about the war and the strife and the persecution of Christians, I don't know how we think uh, that it cannot happen here. So if scripture has any relevance to us today at all, we surely may (laughs) expect war and conflict Unless we as a nation, unless we as a church, and unless we as individuals repent and humble ourselves before God. Third and final application here. We see from this passage that personal failings, falling away and compromises the root of social problems especially at the personal worsening comes to to the expression in the family. Only through prayer and active teaching the word of God and rebuilding family life can we have any hope to restoring our society and culture. Christian involvement in politics is important, but it will only be nothing more than a holding pattern unless the church and the families of our country are rebuilt according to the word of God. So I think we see Israel falling apart on all these levels, and those are lessons for us today as well. Well, this concludes the overall introduction to the book of Judges. Um, I would like to begin to narrow our focus as we approach the way God used individuals in the role of judge in the land of Israel. But before I go on any further, in comments or... Questions or reactions? Thoughts? Yeah. The other way around. yeah. And again, we can see it happening in churches today, in our society today. Which means what kind of an example were the Israelites giving to them? Mm-hmm. Perhaps they had already lost their heart and there was no example except tradition. Again we're dealing with a couple generations removed from Joshua at this point. Yeah. Good point. Anything else? is certainly rejecting the God of the Bible, that's for sure. Okay, uh, I've got a few more minutes. I'd like to, to jump into this next idea. Uh, so let's just open it up. What, what were the judges? I, uh, what I'd like to do is kind of look at the office first, and then we're going to look at individuals who held those office. So what were the judges? mmm Okay. They were not and no. Enemies. Okay, deliverers. That's that's. Yeah. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't mix right. the. So decisions yeah. Did. Yeah. Anything else? Deliverers and decision makers. Yep, that's all part of it. So what I'd like to do in the last few minutes here is kind of describe the office, and then I will follow that up with more details next week. (coughs) They were civil rulers and deliverers of Israel. Um, God is uh, concerned with all human life and society, and it's just false to assume that he limits his interest to the church, the judges show us that God's delivering his people from his enemies and their enemies, in particular in social and political situations. So it was a broad office that uh, we're talking about here. According to scripture, the civil magistrate bears the sword of iron as a threat to evildoers. The magistrate or judge is a minister of God. If you, again, recall from Scripture that our government is appointed by God, and we pray for our, our leaders. Um, so they are a minister of God, but no less than the church officer is. But the magistrate is a minister of God's re- retribution, while the elder of the church is a minister of redemption, or in this case, a, the priest in the synagogue. Judges were civil magistrates. Their normal work was to act as law officers for Israel, settling disputes. Now remember, (laughs) Moses' father-in-law Jethro says you're going to kill yourself if you don't uh, set up some judges here of 50 and 100 and and thousands, and then you can settle the the big disputes. So this is where the concept was coming from. So there were other things other than just being a deliverer of of Israel. So I've broken it down into general work and special work. Their special work was to act as avengers for Israel, destroying the enemies of God. And this is still the (coughs) duty of the magistrate today when you think about it, to settle disputes in court and to prosecute against aggressors. Um, So we can see how some of our judicial systems was based upon um, uh, the judges of the Old Testament. The book of Judges focuses on, <coughs> in on their special work of vengeance and deliverance, because this is important purpose, because through this we see a foreshadowing of the redemption work of Jesus Christ. In Scripture, <coughs> they are... Offices or unofficial works uh, to. Well, I'm sorry, I lost uh To which a, a man may be called beyond the normal uh, capacity of being a, a father or a husband, or uh, so he may be called into uh, God's duty. Uh, and those uh, offices uh, are ordained. And I use the example of deacons and elders. We're husbands and were, uh, we're fathers, but God has called certain people to certain positions. And usually when those positions are acquired, there's some form of ordination by the Holy Spirit as a representative by oil in the Old Testament. The Levites and the kings uh, were ordained regularly by oil as a right of installing them into their official duties. But we do not find such a ritual anointing in this case of judges. The judges were not anointed by oil. However, rather than being anointed directly by the Holy Spirit, rather than the significance of the oil, this does not mean that they were not elected officials. Um, Commentator E.C. Wines has provided uh, some information on this point, talking about how Japheth came to power as a judge. He says there were four stages. It may be noted in the proceedings related to Japheth, the preliminary discussion, the nomination, the presentation to the people, and the installation. And we can find this in Judges 10 and in Judges 11. They completed the election by giving him their vote of confidence, recognizing him as their leader, and installing him in his office. Here then we have the free discussion of the people in a popular assembly concerning the selection of a leader, the nomination of Japheth by the meeting to be chief, and the elders' presentation him to the people for their vote, and his inauguration as a leader of Israel. The point I want to make here is that the judges were not self-appointed but they were leaders recognized by the people. There was a regular way to appoint judges, then even if there was no anointing with oil involved. Again, E.C. Wines continues to detail the political characteristics of judgeships. The Hebrew judges held their office for life. This was true of Moses and Joshua. Joshua. And it's presupposed throughout the book of Judges. And again, we have Supreme Court justices that are supposedly on the bench for life. The office was not hereditary. Moses uh, did not attempt to perpetuate his position among his family members. Um, And remember when Samuel tried to set up his sons as judges, that didn't work out so well. And the people demanded a king. The chief magistrates of Israel were uh, was elective. The oracle, the high priest, and the congregation are all distinctly recorded to have concurred in the elevation of Joshua. Japheth was chosen by chief magistrate by the popular election of the people. Samuel was elected regent in a general Assembly of Israel and there's nothing to indicate the contrary in any case of any of the other judges. The authority of these judges extend to affairs of war and peace uh, There were of a special general they were there was, there was special works and there was general works like I said um, so. There was many different roles to this position. Outright disobedience of the lawful authority and orders of the Hebrew judge was treason. You can see that in Joshua 1.18 and Deuteronomy 17.12. The authority of the Israelite judge was not unlimited nor dictatorial. It was tempered and restrained by the oracle. We see the display in the appointment of Joshua to the leader as the successor of Moses. It is there said that he should stand before Eleazar the priest who could ask counsel for him after the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. So again, he was had some controls. He was bound by certain things. The power of the Hebrew chief judge was further limited by the Uh, the Senate, or the congregation, the people. They were not bound to consult with the body of elders at every point, but they were to consult during important emergencies, and they assembled general assemblies of the rulers to ask their advice, their consent. So we find that repeatedly done by Moses and Joshua and Samuel. And still another limitation of the authority of the Hebrew judges was God's law itself. Their power could not be stretched beyond its legal bounds of God's commands. And E.C. Wine sums it up this way. There was no salary attached to the position of judges in the Hebrew government. No revenues were apportioned to the judges except perhaps a larger share of the spoils taken in war. (laughs) No tribute was raised for them. They had no outward badges of dignity. They did not wear the diadem. They were not invested with sovereign power. They could issue orders, but they could not make laws. They had not the right to appoint officers, except perhaps in the army. And they had no power to raise taxes or burden the people with heavy tax burdens. They were ministers of justice, protectors of law, defenders of religion, and avengers of crime, particularly the crime of idolatry. But their power was constitutional, not arbitrary, was kept within due bounds by barriers of the law, decisions of the oracle and the advice and consent of the Senate and commons of people of Israel. So that kind of gives you a broad description or idea of what the office was like. And then we will zero in on individuals uh, and their position and what God had called them to do in that position. Any thoughts, comments? Okay. Okay. Well, in that case, uh, Brother Ken, would you close us in prayer, please?